Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're done with your Oreo. Yeah, <laughs> done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, Do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, Talk about death. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. Mystery murdery thingy. 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 At the same time. Oh, sorry. Okay. okay. Welcome, Welcome to, to Mystery, Mystery Murdery thingy. thingy. Ooh, yeah. Yay. I'm Mario. I'm Chloe. What's up? Did you get that? Did you get my burp? Did you get did that you on my, the mic? On the mic? This is the time. And this is the record of the time. Just a little Laurie Anderson for you guys. I was going to say, what's that from? <laughs> it's a Laurie Anderson song. She's weird. She's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you were like, yeah, like, we can listen to her, but I don't think you'll like her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes uh, you just, sometimes you just know. But, happy you know. Wednesday, my friends. Happy Wednesday. We are here doing the pod. It's on time. On time. It is Wick Wickety Wednesday. I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. I'd like to take. I'd like to take that back. 1993. <laughs> Wicked now word. Hey, I don't know if you guys have heard the hip jive, but it's Wednesday. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, I'm gonna go first. Okay, Yay. I'm gonna talk about a man of mystery, Moberg, the man of mystery. That's my topic for this week. I'm excited. I love right. when I love when people themselves are like an enigma, like a mystery. Yes. That's a good way to describe Mo actually as an enigma. I like that. Yeah. Um so Moberg. Who was Moberg? He was a big league catcher uh for most of his career. He was a spy. Um yes. for many years he was honestly kind of a bum. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into it. We'll talk about it. Um but you know Mo he was mysterious right from the very he came out mysterious. Right, um, if I can, if I can say that, um, for example, even his name and his date of birth are somewhat obscure. Um, in a lot of the baseball histories and in a lot of, some of the sources that I read, his date of birth is listed as March second, nineteen o two, and his name as Morris. Uh, Mo being, of course, a nickname. But his birth certificate actually says that he was born on May 3rd, 1902, and was named Mosesburg. 
if we have his birth certificate, why is it in question? I, I, that's a mystery. Like, wh- why, oh. why is it even listed differently in all these? Yeah, that, that itself is a mystery. Um, no one knows. <laughs> so, um, you know, Berg was also a great mystery to his baseball teammates. Uh, for example, they never knew where he went after baseball games because <laughs> he would just peace. What? Um, and he was actually dubbed, I believe, by Ted Williams as the mystery man. Um, and Carl Stangle, who was a manager of Berg's, called him the strangest man ever to play baseball. Mm. And he, he had some, some sort of – he was quirky. He, Mo was a quirky guy. For example, if he saw you on the street um, and you were like one of his teammates or for a lot of his life, just like anyone that he knew – he would just completely ignore you and just keep walking. What? Um, or, like, put his, you know, kind of, like, finger up to his lips, like, shh, and then just, like, keep walking. Because he was a man of mystery. No, that's and, and, just you know, creepy. You just didn't understand what he was really doing. <laughs> um, so his uh, teammates and management were, were pretty perplexed by Mo. Um, they were also kind of, you know unsure as to why he was even playing baseball in the first place when he first started because he actually took time off of his first few seasons to finish law school now of course they didn't know all about his his family history how his dad hated baseball never wanted him to play his dad never saw him play a game of baseball and he played for almost 30 continuous years from school to the end of his professional career that's which is pretty sad honestly um but this also kind of explains okay why he was like so adamant about like showing up late to a few seasons even though it you know may have cost him professionally in order to be to actually become a lawyer because he may have made some like deal with his dad um there was like one summer where he kind of had a you know come to jesus moment um of course, Moberg was a non-practicing Jew, but still, um, you know, where his dad may have said, like, okay, fine, play your silly game, but you also have to become a lawyer. So, which he did. Mm, okay. um, eventually, his very presence in the game of baseball became a mystery because Moberg was not a great baseball player. Um, he was a pretty mediocre player, honestly. He was a sometimes brilliant catcher, especially earlier in his career. Um, or as one scout famously put it about Berg, he was, quote, good field, no hit, close quote. Okay, okay. Like some pitchers? Yeah, and and I guess this sort of became like a common phrase, but it started supposedly with Moberg. Uh, good field, no hit. And it, you know, at best he was though an extremely accurate thrower that um, really one of the best that ever caught in the major leagues at the very peak for a short amount of time. Um, he once went over 150 games without a single error. Oh, yeah he he uh, threw out like a huge number of of uh, people one or two years like. You know, at at the very very top, he was like as good as Yogi Berra, but he did he didn't have that sustained success. Um, and he also spent many seasons, you know, especially toward the end of his career, intentionally riding the bench, uh, sometimes refusing to play in games. Um, famously, he would never catch the second or first game of a doubleheader, 
which usually the same catcher doesn't do the first and second game of a doubleheader. But if Mo were your backup, uh, Mo would walk up to you, you know, carrying one of his newspapers that he always would carry and would, uh, yeah, say, hey, you did such a great job in the first game. Why not go out there again? And you would. You would spend another three or four hours kneeling down, catching baseballs, because Mo Berg couldn't be bothered to literally do his job. I was going to ask why, but, like, we don't know. We don't do fully we? know. <laughs> no. Um, but, you know, um, I, I think that this kind of can best be explained by the fact that Mo Berg, he, did, he loved the game of baseball. I mean, he really did. But... What he loved more was the lifestyle that the game of baseball afforded him, okay. literally afforded him. He got to stay in fancy hotels and eat, in, you know, fancy dinners. Um, he always had expensive tastes. And uh, he got to indulge his real great obsession, which was reading. Um, oh. Berg would famously read at least 10 newspapers a day. That sounds like you. I know, right? But but no, but but really, like from cover to cover. Wow. Multiple newspapers, sometimes in supposedly multiple languages, and we'll we'll get into his whole supposed polyglotism, um, speaking, understanding multiple languages. Thank you. Right, and uh, Moberg would get incensed, uh, extremely angry if anyone would so much as touch one of his newspapers, until he had read them. <laughs> referring to them as, quote, live, until after his perusal, after which they became, quote, dead, and meant absolutely nothing to him. But if he had not read it, and this could be days, weeks later, he would expect you to let them sit there in an office or in a chest of drawers or sitting on a table or you know, on a, a chair somewhere. But if he hadn't read it, then you were expected to treat it like it was fucking gold. <laughs> and But as soon as he read it, then it was trash. It's it, Again, he's a quirky guy. Yeah. So all in all, Moberg was a big, you know, mystery to baseball people in general as this kind of intellectual, you know, polyglot that they named Professor Berg. And they, they made a whole, they made a lot of this, especially <laughs> some of the sports writers. Berg was also somewhat apart and sort of othered um, to his teammates and, and a lot of people as the rare uh, Jewish player in the major leagues. Um, Moberg was, like I said before, Jewish but non-practicing. His parents never went to synagogue. They didn't teach him Judaism but of course, you know, this was especially, you know, in the 30s, uh, yeah, I mean, before that, through, throughout his entire life, being Jewish was, was sort of a, a burden, something he was, he, he was proud of his heritage, but he wa he wasn't like into it religiously. You know, he was kind of a cultural Jew, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I understand. And Berg, um was also equally a mystery to the sort of bona fide intellectual scientists with whom he would interact. And they were very impressed by him sort of as the, you know, as the athlete who's also sort of an intellectual. So he was always kind of in between groups, right? Um, he was 
um, a, a a Jew who would spend a lot of time with non-Jews. You know, he was a baseball player who'd spend a lot of time with intellectuals, but an intellectual who would spend a lot of time with baseball players. Right, right. You know, so he was he was sort of the consummate outsider. Um, and when I say that, you know, bona fide intellectuals, it's not like Moberg didn't have some bona fides as a real, you know, intellectual. Um, he started school at his you know, great insistence at three and a half when he at saw his great insistence. Yeah. When, when he was three and a half years old and he saw his older brother and sister going to school, he would not stop asking until his parents let him start going to school at three and a half. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that tells you something. Eventually he attended Princeton oh, after okay. a year at NYU that he thereafter never acknowledged that, actually ever happened he was like embarrassed by going to nyu i don't know um he uh, also attended the sabone in um in uh, paris known as one of the best schools in the world and also columbia law school and he was accepted at the new york state bar um he cemented his sort of highbrow status through several appearances on the then-popular radio quiz show, Information Please, mm-hmm. um, where callers would, would call in and ask uh, questions of a panel, uh, which also included a guest host. And, and Moberg guest-hosted, or get, I was, was a guest on there, rather, a few times. Um, and the legend of Professor Berg, like I said before, was sort of further cultivated in the in the sports press. When there was a slow day, they would write about, you know, Moberg and his, you know, great exploits, whatever. You <laughs> Here's know. what Mo did today. Right. They had to have something. So it became about Mo and his, um, you know, 8, 12, 1,000 languages that he spoke. You know how these things go. Yeah. His, 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 And that's part of the mystery, too, right, is this myth-making surrounding him that he wanted also to be surrounding him. Um, it just, and also just sort of naturally seemed to, you know, to, uh, to follow Mo. One of the mysteries that, um, fomented these sort of sports writers interest was just how much language proficiency Moberg actually did have, right? Like all supposed polyglots, you know, see recent stories about Pete Buttigieg, um, Moberg was variously ascribed perfect knowledge of, you know, between seven and 27 languages. That's a big gap. Yeah. And, and this is, this typically happens with people who are ascribed multiple languages. The more people talk about it, the more languages they know and the better they know them. It, it, yeah. It's, it sort of feeds on itself. But seven as the minimum, like I'm impressed. <laughs> right. But, you know, to get, to like to to demystify this a little bit um as close as we can actually tell because again moberg wouldn't deny these things either like if, right right if one day you said he knew eight languages the next day you said he knew 10 he wasn't going to correct you of course you know um but when it when it came down to like telling the government like the oss or the cia and, and i'll talk about the oss in a little bit um you know, what Berg actually knew, and this was kind of in his middle age, he professed a somewhat passable knowledge of, like, three to four languages and um, a sort of more passing knowledge of a couple of others. Okay. So he wasn't as much of a... Poly- he didn't know, 
a lot of times people say he knew what um, English, Yiddish, Hebrew, French, Spanish, Italian, um, and maybe one or two others. People always like to throw Sanskrit in there. (laughs) He probably didn't know any of those languages fluently except for French. He was extremely good at French. Native speakers of French would sometimes ask him where he was from in France. Nice. Yeah. And and he was extremely interested in language, you know, just kind of as a, a sort of amateur linguist. He could have been a professional linguist. He was offered a job to teach languages at Princeton as soon as he graduated. Wow. Um, which he turned down because, uh, again, you know, he wanted to play baseball and become a lawyer. Um, so, you know, again, this, this tells you about Mo Berg, right? Priorities. Yeah, exactly. He had his priorities. Um, he, the other thing is he was really good in Latin. Um, he would routinely, um, translate like Latin inscriptions. Um, there was one time I think he was at a, like a graduation ceremony and there was a, a little like honorary speech given in Latin. And he was like translating it like as it was going. So apparently he was he was and that that was what he studied first, you know, kind of Latin and Greek and the classical languages. So things like the number of languages he spoke are somewhat difficult to to define. Like a lot of things about Moberg, partly because he quite intentionally created this larger than life kind of mythos persona around himself. Um, he was just kind of one of those people, and there, there's just certain people who want to you know, make themselves seem like a larger figure than they, even if they are naturally a large figure, you know, it needs to be like bigger. And in service of this myth-making, Berg would relay tales. Um, He was a great, great storyteller. And uh, part of what made his stories really great was that he would tend to embellish a little bit. So whether, (laughs) you know, it was about his spy work, his early baseball brilliance, whatever, it, again, it was, it was always just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And some of these tales, you know, would be completely true, but sometimes Berg would get caught in a kind of half truth or embellishment and, and would admit it. Um, so we, we, we know that, that this is like a tendency that he had. So we know that he, okay. Okay. So in other words, he was a great storyteller, but not a terribly reliable narrator. Okay. And and you certainly couldn't take what he said as fact about himself. And this is, again, one of these kind of mysterious things about him. He never actually wrote an autobiography. Um, you'd think that he would have, that he would have written some kind of memoir or something. Just the, the amount of time that he spent talking about himself and relaying these stories, you know, to, to people verbally. But... Apparently he tried multiple times and um, wasn't able to do it. Like we have like notes that he started and it would just kind of peter out. He would start by writing like sentences and paragraphs and then it would just turn into like notes and then it would just peter out. Again, we, we don't really know why because he retold certain scenes from his life literally thousands, tens of thousands yeah. of, of times over the years. Um and I'm going to kind of talk a, a, a little bit about uh, a couple of these um, incidents um, that are more or less mysterious. So one of the incidents that Mo would kind of endlessly recall to people <laughs> in, you know, mainly in his later years occurred during his trip to Japan in 1934. 
Um, so Japan is, you know, of course, the one of the other great baseball nations, right? Other than America. Oh, and... I didn't. I, I didn't know that. Sure. If, if if you don't know too much about baseball history, you may not know. But um, yes, it, it, it was uh, brought over to Japan fairly early on. And, and Japan was the second nation in the world with a professional baseball league, for example. Okay. Um, so it was quite popular there. And in 1934, there, there was a, a trip organized with some great players. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig. Um, among them was Mo Berg. And <laughs> people people kind of wonder a little bit why he was there because he was not a Babe Ruth. He was not the Lou Gehrig. He was not one of the greats. Um, But what he was, was again, kind of a linguist and someone who was really interested in in world affairs and things of that nature. And, And no one's really sure you know, whether he talked to the government before he went or not. That that's kind of a mystery. Oh, Oh, And, and, and we'll kind of get in a little bit here as, as to why some people might think that as well. But their main reason for being there was promoting baseball, teaching baseball to, to the Japanese. And Mo, who, again, was fascinated with languages his whole life, um, learned some Japanese on the two-week voyage to Tokyo from, from Hawaii. Um, but he didn't become, like, fluent in Japanese in two weeks, which is what some of the reports <laughs> said and what he himself, you know, led people to believe sometimes. Yeah, yeah for sure. But it's not true. <laughs> no one can learn a fluent language in two weeks. I like, can. That's ridiculous. Um, Mo also ventured out and sort of partook of much more of the culture than his teammates. On one occasion, Berg also um, told everyone that he was going to go visit the daughter of the American ambassador in Tokyo, who had just given birth to a daughter. And she was, um, you know, there in in the hospital, right? So Mo puts on a kimono and goes to the hospital, presumably to, you know, visit the ambassador's daughter. Doesn't do that. Um, He takes the flowers they brought for her, throws them away, goes up to the very top of the building, one of the highest buildings in Japan, takes out a film camera from under his kimono, and even though it was expressly forbidden for anyone to take any photographs, especially foreigners, he takes his time, you know, fully aware of this, in creating a panorama video of the city of Tokyo and sort of the surrounding area. Now, why exactly he did this remains somewhat of a mystery. That's... Mm, that's some spy shit right there. <laughs> this, you know, this at least points to the fact that he was always in this spying mindset. I think Moberg was always fated to to be a spy. And people would say this to him. Like, even before he became, even people who didn't know that, that he, you know, even, you know, would become a spy or was a spy. Be like, Mo, Mo you're, you're like a spy. You know, you just seem like a spy. <laughs> He would, for example, he would wear, like, the same gray suit every day. People, He was one of those people where people weren't sure whether he had more than one suit or not. He was also one of those people who, would like, literally had, like, eight of the same suit, the same shirt, the same ties. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like um, a cartoon character. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, in, but in real life. Yeah. So... Again, this is spy-like behavior, right? But even back in 1934, he was doing this. Now, some claim that he was already working as a spy for the government, even back then. 
Um, but it's not really totally clear whether that's the case or not. Um, what we do know, though, is that Berg continued to illicitly film and photograph throughout the long solo trip that he took uh, subsequent to, to Japan. M- most people just went back to America, not Mo. Mo was like, I am not wasting this opportunity. <laughs> he went all throughout Asia. He he oh, wow. he went to um, and then he went all the way across Russia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Um, so he, he literally took a train, like, all the way across the continent. And once he um, got to Moscow, he was caught twice, filming illicitly. Um, you know, literally, like, tap on the shoulder, like, what are you doing? Give me your camera, give me your film. And when he was leaving the country, which, you know, of course, you get caught twice filming, you're like, okay, I'm going to pee. It's time to go. Probably, probably time to go. Um, he did manage to smuggle two rolls of film out of the country, which he was forever showing people. You know, which wouldn't you? I mean, you have like, you know, this this places that no one else has, you know, isn't that going to get you arrested? No, not in America. In America, no one's going to care whether you illegally filmed in Japan and Russia. Um, so eventually Berg present, and this is why I don't think that he was working for the government at the time, because later, like years and years later, once World War II started, once Pearl Harbor had happened, right, um, he presented these films to the American government and other photographs that he had taken, you know, for, for whatever use they could put them to. And what is also a mystery, sort of within the mystery, is to what extent these films that Berg made had any real strategic value to the to the military. Um, yeah. To me, it seems like he might have been taking these pictures just to see if he could do it. That's what it seems like to me. Like, he was just sort of thrill-seeking. Yeah. You know, which it seems like Moberg that he was a thrill seeker. Right, right. And, it, like, and, makes sense with the narrative. Oh, sure. And I think it also points to the fact that he was fearless, um, which he definitely was. Like, throughout his life, he, um, yeah, he he just seemed to have nerves of steel, which, again, good for a spy. Um, so Berg would later claim that these uh, films and photographs were key to particularly General Jimmy Doolittle's air raid mission over Tokyo in 1942. However, others dispute this and claim that they had little, if any, practical usefulness for the military, partly because they were pretty outdated by that point. Um, The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. You know, it seems like maybe they were used, but maybe they had limited utility for the military. Um, But it, you know, again, should be kept in mind that Moberg's a pretty famous embellisher. So I don't think they were as key to the war effort as he made them out to, to seem. Grain of salt. Yeah, grain, grain, grain of salt. Um, so another sort of the other big, um, you know, or, or I should say maybe the one big kind of like spy mission that Moberg conducted, right? Which, again, he was like always telling people about. Um, sometimes too much. Like apparently sometimes he would like divulge too much detail to certain people about his spy work, like stuff he really wasn't supposed to tell people, but but not until years and years later. Um, so anyway, Berg's sort of seminal mission as a true-to-life spy during World War II involved one of the biggest mysteries during the war. Was Nazi Germany close to developing a nuclear weapon? No one knew. Oh. You know, at the time, it, it, it was very unclear. Now, spoiler alert, they didn't. 
They weren't close. Um, we know that now, but at the time it was a big mystery. So particularly in 1944, when Goebbels and the German propaganda machine were telling people essentially that they did have a nuclear bomb. Um, so, you know, as part of his work, uh, Berg's work for the office of strategic services, which was the precursor to the modern day CIA, the office of strategic services was like the first spy service, formal spy service that the, that our government ever had. Um, Mo Berg was sent into Europe to, to, to assess the likelihood of a German bomb. And he gathered intelligence from various scientists uh, throughout Europe, mainly Italian scientists. But the big prize was Werner Heisenberg. Werner Heisenberg, um, you know, if, if, if you sort of know physicists, you know, if you're interested in the history of science like I am, <laughs> you'll know that Werner Heisenberg was one of the real towering figures in modern science. Um, big name. Big, big name, probably known as, and of course, this is at a time when you had Niels Bohr and Fermi and Einstein. Heisenberg may have been the most brilliant theoretical physicist of all of them. You know, it's, it it would be sort of between him and Einstein. Um, Einstein, you could say, was the more brilliant physicist at the macro scale, uh, whereas Heisenberg was the more brilliant theoretical physicist at the quantum scale. Um, He was known, Heisenberg mainly is known as the um, definer of this uncertainty principle, right? Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which underlies a lot of our modern understanding of, of, you know, quantum physics, physics at the smallest scales. Um, But despite its great importance, Heisenberg's famous theory, the uncertainty principle, is also, like a lot of things in quantum physics, almost completely impossible to understand, truly, to truly understand. However, apparently, after a lot of study... Moberg was able to sort of vaguely understand it. Um, And because he was, you know, able to quickly learn difficult subjects like quantum physics, you know, nuclear physics, um, also because he had a facility with languages and his ability to, like we've been talking about, right, mold social situations around him and sort of, you know, um, fit in wherever he was. Um, Moberg was um, the ideal candidate to attend a lecture that Heisenberg was giving in neutral Switzerland in Zurich to assess the likelihood of a German bomb and to shoot Heisenberg if the bomb seemed imminent. Yeah, he literally had a pistol and a cyanide capsule. And if he determined either the lecture that he attended or through the walk that he took with Werner Heisenberg through the ill-lit streets of Zurich. Oh, my God. The perfect setting, right? Um, That if at any time he felt like, okay, they're close to making the bomb, it was goodbye, Werner. Pop, pop, Exactly. So, um, yeah, he didn't, though. He, He sort of, you know, determined that it didn't seem like they were particularly close, um, which, you know, helped to sort of solve this mystery and allay the fears of, you know, the Americans. Well, thank God he was right. Right. Um, and though, as with much about Moberg, it remains a bit unclear the extent to which this mission was key in assessing Germany's nuclear development. Certainly it, it was important, but there were also parallel missions unbeknownst to Berg at the time. 
going on with the same exact mission. And there were other sources of intelligence as well. So, you know, Berg would maintain that his trip in Zurich in 1944, you know, sort of totally changed the course of the war. Mm -hmm. But it was probably not that simple, right? But because of these, you know, wartime exploits, among others, and the lobbying of some powerful friends, Berg was awarded the Medal of Freedom several years later. Mysteriously, he refused to accept it. And no one really knows why. But he lobbied for it? He didn't. Some of his friends did. Oh, oh, okay, okay. And some speculate that Berg may have thought that his actions in the war, as as impressive as they, like, truly were, didn't merit that big of an award. Again, he never seemed to really live up to his own expectations. And, um, yeah, that it, this sort of like speaks to the last sort of part of his life, right? The last 20 to 25 years of his life, which are kind of a mystery in and of themselves, particularly what did he do? Like, what did he do all day? What did he do for money? For the last, like, 20 to 25 years of his we life. We just don't know? We don't really know. Um, it's more or less mysterious. I'm confused. There are large <laughs> portions of, of, you know, his time where they're just kind of not accounted for. And he didn't have any regular job for the last, like, 20 to 25 years he lived. Despite his evident brilliance, you know, his knowledge of the law, languages, baseball, um, he chose apparently not to maintain a regular gainful employment, you know, for that, for that, that time period. Um, and it's not really yeah, clear exactly what he was doing all, all, all of that time. Now, if, if Berg had had his way, he would have become one of the lucky few, um, about 1000 out of about 13,000 who went from the OSS to the CIA. But that, oh, okay. that was very rare. Again, they went from about 13,000 OSS employees yeah. to about 1,000 CIA employees in the beginning. So there weren't many. Um, so, you know, he would always kind of intimate that he was still a spy, but it wasn't true. He wasn't actually a spy, um, apparently. He, he may have done a little bit of work, but he didn't really he he wasn't really a spy for the last part of his life and many people wondered exactly what he did for a living how he survived and the best explanation i was able to come with was that uh come up with was that he essentially sold stories he became wow. a kind of you know traveling okay. bard who would you know delight and entertain his audiences in exchange for you know food and housing essentially and um he also stayed with his brother. He stayed in his brother's house on and off for about 17 years until his brother just, like, couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and he moved in with his sister. Now, Mo Brothers, Mo Berg's, rather, brother and sister absolutely hated each other. They lived a few blocks oh. away from each other and never spoke for, like, 30 years. Oh oh. Like, almost at all. Only when they absolutely had to. They just hate it. And no one really knows why either. That's another mystery. <laughs> they also none There's of... so many whys here. So many whys. Again, this mystery abounds around this guy. So um, part of the reason also why, you know, he was this sort of <laughs> just kind of a bum, apparently he hated to work. Like, he didn't like being on a regular schedule. He didn't like people telling him what to do. So he was offered and a couple of times accepted, but didn't really keep them, various jobs that he would eventually just kind of flake on. Um, and, you know, while he was incompetent as an employee, he was sort of a, a great guest, he was called. 
um, he became very, very used to being a guest. Um, in fact, for portions of his life, um, even some of his close biographers don't know exactly where he lived because he would just be constantly traveling. When he 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 would like. Um, or even when he was in one city, he would change residences. He would live in hotels and hostels. He never, other than his brother and sister's house, really had a, you know, kind of a, a permanent um, residence. Sometimes he would also just kind of show up in a town, pull out his notebook of of phone numbers, because he, he just had, like, people he knew. And he would just call him up and say, hey, this is Mo." I'm going to show up at this time. It's like, let's go out. I'm staying at your house. <laughs> yeah. He oh would just God. invite himself. Yes. I will be staying at your house, but it worked because he was Mo Berg and like being in his presence to him was the payment. Like that's what he was giving. He was giving you the privilege of him staying with you, but it was successful, but it was successful because usually stuff like that makes you like an arrogant prick, not, uh, right. You know. But Mo Berg was also incredibly charming. And, like, engaging. Um, so when, when he was staying with you, he was generally, like, a great guy to have around. He would regale the family with stories, you know, stories of his exploits as a spy, stories of his travels through Asia and Europe, stories about playing with Babe Ruth and Ted Williams. But for some, hearing the same stories, you know, some obviously embellished, really began to wear and when it became obvious he wasn't wanted anymore, Berg would generally make himself scarce um, without saying anything. He would just be gone. And, and sometimes even not when he wasn't wanted anymore. He would just be gone. Um, he wouldn't tell you where he was going, what he was doing, why he was leaving, that he was going to leave. He would just not be there. Like after baseball games. Exactly. Like uh, this is kind of a recurring theme through his whole life. Um Sometimes he would say he was coming for a few nights, and he would come for a few weeks. Uh, uh. Um, he would often overstay uh, his welcome. Yeah. Um, another quirk about Moberg is that he would take routinely up to two to three showers a day, which also would probably get a little annoying. Um, Berg also intentionally never learned to drive and never got a driver's license, so he would need constant chauffeuring around. And he also in this last part of his life, almost never paid for anything. Um, sometimes this was because he was the famous Mo Berg and he was, you know, near the Red Sox stadium and, you know, your money's no good here, Mr. Berg. Sometimes oh, okay. it was because he was with rich friends who would just pay. Yeah. Now there is one that's, notable... That's the way to go. <laughs> right. Um, there is one notable, you know, sort of mysterious exception to this. While he was consoling a friend's wife, whom the friend had, had just left and kind of told Mo to tell her, um, which is kind of weird, um, Berg would, for two months straight, take her out to fancy dinners and pay for everything. But it's not clear, like, even to the writer of the book where I got a lot of my information, exactly where Berg got the money for this. Because around this time, he wasn't paying for anything. He was just bumming meals like he always did. And the woman's husband, who was wealthy, says that he wasn't giving Berg the money. So we really don't know where this money was coming from. It, it remains a mystery. Now, on a darker note, um, one kind of has to mention this about Marburg, too, that he may have been sort of a sexual assaulter. Oh, we don't We don't really know, but there were a couple of 
sort of odd slash disturbing stories about him making a couple of preteen girls very uncomfortable. And also some stories of what amounts to sexual assault or harassment, well, like gr- grabbing women without their consent, etc. Well, it's kind of weird that he was taking someone else's wife out to ex- fancy, expensive dinners. Well, that was after he had left her, but he also wasn't, oh. like, pursuing her, which was another oh, weird okay. thing. Like, sometimes he would, like, take take a woman out, like, spend a lot of time with her, but never really, like, pursue anything. Just his whole, like, sexual romantic life is very, very mysterious. Um, He was kind of known as a ladies' man and would routinely be seen, you know, and photographed out with beautiful young women, but, but always a different one. And he never from what we can tell, like with letters and, and kind of background interviews and stuff that have been done, he didn't usually seem to pursue a physical relationship with these women. Um, and certainly no like lasting relationship. So, um, yeah, he was sort of fascinating and inscrutable, sometimes intolerable. Um, but, but always mysterious and always interesting. And because of, you know, Moberg's unwillingness to divulge personal details, um, while also weirdly talking about himself constantly, and his inability (laughs) to maintain any close relationships in his life, Moberg really remains kind of a a man of mystery. Um, And I was going to close out here with a couple of quotes. So first, a quote from Paul Rudd. Uh, the great, the, the great Paul Rudd, who played Moberg in in a um, one of the, the oh. recent movies that were was made about him, which which we should watch. Um, so Paul Rudd said of Berg, "quote He wasn't someone who particularly wanted to be known. He found pleasure in the unknowable." Close quote. I I, I I love that quote. He found pleasure in the unknowable. I feel like I feel like that's us. I know, right? <laughs> he embraced the mystery, yeah. as we all should. And last of all, here's a quote from Moberg himself um, about himself not long before he passed in, in 1972. Quote, Maybe I'm not in the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame like so many of my baseball buddies, but I'm happy I had the chance to play pro ball. And I'm especially proud of my contributions to my country. Perhaps I could not hit like Babe Ruth, but I spoke more languages than he did. Close quote. No brag, no brag. <laughs> that re- reminds me of another quote. Of somebody saying like, yeah, Mo Berg, he can speak 12 languages and he can't hit in any of them. Oh, <laughs> that man. quote came up many times in my research. Burn. <laughs> so so what, are, what are the books you, you listened to slash read? Yeah, definitely. So um, The Catcher Was a Spy. It was the, the name of the audiobook oh, that I listened uh, to. Clever. Right, by okay. Nicholas Dawadoff. Right. It's uh, one, one of two of, uh, sort of main biographies about Moberg. Um, my other sources were Shirley Loing at Boston Globe, Bruce Fetz at the New York Times, the Moberg page on CIA.gov, the Moberg page on Atomic Heritage Foundation, their website, Manuel Roig Franzia at the Washington Post, uh, Wikipedia, the Moberg page, Jonathan Mark at the Times of Israel, and Ralph Berger at the Society for American Baseball Research. Wow. So that that is the mysterious Moberg. Okay, so I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> um, I don't know how to follow that. So okay. I'm going to just go ahead and... Just do it. Jump in here. Jump in. Um. Okay, so I have... Oh I'm my rooting God. for you. 
my computer screen is so gross in case oh, yeah. anybody was wondering okay cool. <laughs> i'm like scraping <laughs> off crud if we, ever, if we ever do a video version you can see our uh her gross sucks. It's like hair all over it. All right. So I am talking about, this is pretty dark. It's not, okay. it's not dark. It, I mean, all of it's dark, but it, it's, it's, it's the true, um, I mean, a lot of missing people have that kind of, uh, thing where they straight up disappear, vanish, mm-hmm. never to be seen again. And... Those ones are so, in my opinion, so difficult to cover because there's usually nothing there. Like, there's nothing to talk about except that they were there one day and then they weren't. Right. Um, but Rico Harris, he was a an up-and-coming uh, basketball player, and mm. he was definitely supposed to go pro. But um, a lot of... Uh, a lot of alcohol abuse, a lot of drug abuse got in his way until he finally vanished one day. So let's talk about it. So Rico Harris was six foot nine, 300 pound basketball player, and he suddenly went missing in October of 2014. So he was um, he was shy. He was soft spoken, kind of timid, but he was a free spirit. And grew up in a two-bedroom um, duplex, with, and he was the oldest of four siblings. And so his parents, um, his his mother, Margaret Fernandez, she uh, worked really hard, full-time job, uh, helped uh, support the family. Meanwhile, his father, Henry, um, although uh, Margaret and Fernandez, or... Um, Henry and Margaret did have start out as having a, a good marriage and they were inseparable and stuff like that. Eventually, Henry became very violent and very abusive. And uh, in the couple articles I read, I even recalled uh, a moment when he uh, beat up Rico because he had like some new piercing or something like that. Um, eventually, Margaret did get up and leave she left that bastard um and at one point rico even tried to make amends with his father but uh his father like straight up told him he was like i am not fit to be a dad yeah goodbye mm-hmm. so it's kind of rough when you're yeah. when your father says that to you so he um so they moved to the suburb of alhambra california which is right near los angeles and so um, like I said, uh, Rico was always, he was always a tall dude, always loved basketball, and he started out at a uh, Fremont Elementary School, and he was actually playing with adults, like playing pickup basketball with adults at the gym by the time he was 11. Wow. Um, he wanted to make it, make basketball a career, and he wanted to carve out a better life for himself and also for his mother. He grew up worshiping Magic Johnson and uh, the the glory that was the Los Angeles Lakers at the time in the about uh, mid to late nineties. Here, so uh, he started out high school at Hollywood High, but eventually left to go to Temple City High School. And uh, so, yeah, he in high school he was originally shy and withdrawn, but he did find. Peace and found a little haven in playing basketball. And in high school, he met Melinda Young, who would be his long 
term girlfriend. They did eventually break up, but at the time, they uh, uh, they they got together very quickly and they fell in love very quickly. Um, just described described her as the love of his life. Uh, she was also very academically inclined, and as was he. So with her with her by his his side and her um, motivation, along with Harris's own hard work, he graduated with a 3.0. So he only played two years of high school basketball because he went to Hollywood High and then his junior year went to the Temple City High School. But he was already super talented and uh, basketball scouts flocked to go see him play. Uh, He averaged 28 points and 15 rebounds during his senior season. Wow. Yes, and was recognized along with future NBA players Paul Pierce, Jason Terry, and Chauncey Billups. He was recognized as one of the top players from the Western United States. Wow. He... And just if if you're not into basketball, I mean, especially Paul, Paul Pierce is like a historical player. Yeah. But all three of those are like high, high level NBA players for many, many years. Well, Rico was on the way. Wow. It's it's a it's a tragic story because he really he really was up there. He mm-hmm. so after he graduated high school, he was offered to play by some of the top college basketball teams. He was Connecticut wanted him, Kentucky wanted him, Arizona wanted him, UCLA wanted him. Wow. And they were throwing scholarships his way. So he chose Arizona. But this is when uh, he started getting into trouble. Mm. So in March of 1996, he was arrested for an incident involving teammates G. Gervin, who is the son of NBA Hall of Famer George Gervin. The Iceman. The Iceman. And Tommy Prince. So two women ended up accusing um, the players of holding them against their will and forcing them to perform sex acts while all three of them were arrested. They were, they were eventually like arrested on suspicion of false imprisonment. Harris was the only one not accused of the more serious charge of sexual assault. And eventually all the charges were dropped and um, nothing ever really came of it because of investigators, stated that the women gave conflicting stories and nothing ever really added up to anything solid and, and incredible to to um keep to make a charge. right 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 so uh nonetheless ASU officials ASU officials were like that's terrible and that's not okay he was asked to sit out um for a season but he refused he got up and he left and he went home. He went back home to be with his mother and his girlfriend. So when he left Arizona State, he eventually uh, went back to school and he went to uh, L.A. City College and he found success there. So in 1997, Rico led the school to their first state title, a 67 to 62 victory over San Jose College. So it is a bit of a... Um, a da- a downfall for him to go from Arizona State to a uh, an unnamed uh Los Angeles college, but at the at this point in his life, he he was kind of down, and he was also very um he was very attached to his his home and and his his family, and he wanted to stay in that area. That that happened a lot as I was reading uh the two articles that I had and uh um going through his education and stuff like that, he often would move move back home, just go back home. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so 
he led the school to their first state title and he received a winner's medal and the state MVP trophy. A few weeks later, uh, Harris signed on. He committed to Jim Herrick's revival at the University of Rhode Island. So Jim was trying to build up a good basketball team, a good basketball program to represent the university. Lamar Odom was on the list and uh, Zach Marbury was on the list and Rico was next. Mm -hmm. So he only had to pass one class at LACC in order to go to Rhode Island, uh, which was a psychology course, but he stopped going to class Mm -hmm. and he failed the course. And so the transfer was blocked. He did not end up going. Uh, So he later went home, but then he did return to Los Angeles City College, even though he didn't he didn't really want to be here, be be there. But he also couldn't let go of of basketball. Um, And at that point, it wasn't it wasn't challenging enough. He was playing against people who were not of his caliber at all. Mm. Uh, Things, you know, got worse and worse. He started drinking heavily. He did a lot of partying with his brother, Tito, who he shared an apartment with near campus. Um, his One of his former teammates, uh, Derek Anderson, I have a quote from him. He's, he ta- he like talks about when Harris showed up to a game like after a long night out. Quote, I'll never forget. We were playing at home and he came in and we were already in the layup line and he got in the warm up line with black sunglasses on. He probably didn't get no sleep and up all night. Then dropped like 35 that game, end quote. So uh, his scoring average went up, but also his uh, drinking activities went up. So as you can tell, there was a lot going on with Harris uh, at this time. Um, he he continued to drink. It uh, got more frequent at, you know, at one point he was nursing his hangovers with beer. Um him and his girlfriend, Melinda Young, rarely spoke. They eventually broke up. And he, instead of going, he used to always head home on the weekends, but he stopped going home the weekends. He spent a lot of time isolated and alone. He was ditching practices. It was going downhill. College recruiters would come by the gym and watch, but Harris never opened their letters or returned their responses. He He felt that Okay, so he had this like weird thing with college coach coaches. He felt that they were pushy and he felt that they weren't they were looking at ability and not his character. Uh they were only telling him what he wanted to hear. So what he ended up doing was he bypassed the four-year college thing and went straight to the 1998 NBA draft. Mm-hmm. So he 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 got invited. Like he even was invited to a pre-draft camp up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. But a few days before it started, he he lost. He lost hope. Lost faith. He pulled his name out of the out of the draft consideration. Um, he, I think the quote was something along the lines of he, lines of he was tired of the pressure. He he was tired of trying to live up to all of these expectations, and it was it was too sure. much. And he still wasn't ready to leave home, and he made a kind of surprising move by calling up um, the head coach at Cal State Northridge named Bobby Braswell. So they had actually formed a kind of um, a casual relationship three years earlier when he was being uh, recruited. And at this point, Rico Harris felt like that he needed discipline and, and that Braswell was the person that he could trust. So at that point, he goes to Northridge and he starts playing ball over there. 
but he still never kicked his alcohol habit. It was alcohol for him was a constant that was always there, right? Um, and while sometimes people and relationships weren't, and he was always uh, going from school to school, always had all these opportunities open to him, but he he always lost hope, and so things were passing by him very quickly, except for alcohol that was always there. It was always constant. Seems like he um, it's a lot of. Um like uh self sabotage. Yeah, yeah, a lot of um a lot of depression, which I could feel. Yeah, I could definitely and, feel that. You know, it it is very very tragic, but um it's definitely a kind of story I've heard before. Yeah. Where, you know, a player they have like a lot of physical ability um but they're they're just a little too I don't know. It, it. I think it's a lot of times these smarter players, you know, mm-hmm. where they're a little too cerebral. They're they're a little too self conscious. Yeah, too in the head, too in their heads. Yeah. So it just like it. It's all like a little bit too much, like, right? Mentally, even if like physically, they're perfectly capable. Right. And he was kind kind of shy and kept to himself to to begin with, and yeah. uh, sometimes, especially when you're feeling sad and you've got all those feelings to feel and shit's not going right, and your dad's hitting you, you got to talk to somebody about that. But he. Uh, presumably, as far as I know, most likely never did. Yeah. Um. So he did start playing ball at Northridge, and then, like I said, he um. He he could not kick that habit, so he was suspended early in his first season, and and re- NBA recruiters stopped coming. They noticed this habit, um, and when he was about to, so he uh after his suspension. When he was about to be reinstated, he was supposed to go to a meeting with uh, Braswell, but he sh- never showed up, and he left the school entirely. Wow. So, at this point, he's uh, he stopped going to school, and the International Basketball League's not around anymore, but he did uh, bounce around there. He played with the San Diego Stingrays and the St. Louis Storm for a while, until the spring of 2000, when he got a gig with the Harlem Globetrotters, but it only lasted a month and it all came crashing down for good on a night out with a girl in South Los Angeles. So this is kind of, um, along with the alcohol abuse, his, 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 um, his downfall hit. And it, at this point it was, it was really out of his control. So he had an argument with another group of people. Basically he, he got out of his car to confront them and while talking to one of them someone picked up a baseball bat and whacked him across the back of the head. Never the same since. Never the same. He had intense headaches, his balance was off, he couldn't play. It was over. Um he he quit and he went back home. So at this point he's still young, he's twenty four. In two thousand one he's twenty four. So between two for um about six years between twenty one two thousand one and two thousand seven really spiraled out. He faced 16 cases in L.A. County Superior Court on a slew of charges, most of them being public intoxication, uh, some of them burglary, some of them trespassing. He was in and out of jail all the time. He was eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and he was put on medication. But like many, many people do, he stopped taking his medication because it didn't make him feel right. Right. Didn't like how it made him feel. Um... And he started to move on to to even harder drugs like crack, meth, heroin. Uh, 
And I have a quote from his childhood friend, David Lara, quote, it's a local tragedy. He was the best ball player this city ever saw. And then you'd see him in the street, drunk and asking for quarters. It was despair, bro. It was down there. It was the darkest of the dark, end quote. So he did have a wake up call. Um, His wake up call came when he overdosed on prescription pills. So his mother found him like in his bed, choking on his own vomit convulsing, uh, called the paramedics, got him to the hospital, got a stomach pumped, and uh, he was out two days later. At that point, he was like, this is, um, uh, hit his childhood friend and the people around him. He just kind of realized now. Um, and David Lara said, you know, if you keep doing this, you're going to end up dead. Mm-hmm. So he checked himself into the Salvation Army Adult Rehabilitation Center in downtown L.A., And this is where he started to rebuild his life and things started to brighten up for him. So he did, he, uh, um, and it it took a while, which, um, uh, I mean, I mean, that doesn't really necessarily, uh, mean anything, but, um, in my opinion, I looked at it as that he had, he had a lot to work on and he wanted to work hard and he wanted to do it right. Mm -hmm. And he got a job at the rehab center. He went to group meetings. He's, uh, And like I said, he spent a lot of time in recovery and he just wanted to feel like himself again. He made amends with his family and his friends. He go, he went on to mentor others and soon he volunteered at a shelter himself. Um, And then he got a, once he left the rehab center, he got a job and began working long hours as a security detail. So, when he had been sober sober for seven years, he met Jennifer Song, a 34-year-old insurance broker, and uh, she was in town visiting from Seattle, and they met at a party, and they hit it off immediately. Um, and so he hadn't had a close, long-term relationship since high school, so he, he was really into this, and, and they took it slow. They were super happy together. Um, it was a long-distance relationship. They would, She would fly out to California from Seattle and visit him, and they spent um, long weekends together, and they soon talked about marriage and kids. So eventually, he went to Seattle, and he moved in with Jennifer. But the thing is about this, and the mom explained it perfectly, that Every time they saw each other, it was like a honeymoon, mm-hmm. right? So now that they were living with each other and they were with each other constantly, yeah. there was friction. The bloom was off the rose. It was right. It it wasn't it wasn't the same. Um, his mother and uh, his former roommate voiced their concerns, saying that uh, Jennifer was kind of controlling as well. They did share a Facebook account. They shared credit cards and they shared a bank account. Um. And so once they started living together and things started to crumble apart, he relapsed. He started drinking again and he lost his job, started drinking even more. Eventually, he did score an interview for a new job in Seattle with a a real estate company. And October 8th, 2014, he drove from Seattle back to his hometown, Alhambra, to collect some of his belongings uh, to, to prepare for this new job and as and to speak to his mom and to his brother, just to talk to them about uh, what what's going on. Because they're not at, he's not at a great point right now. I have a quote from um, his mom, quote, the last conversation with me, he wasn't in a good place and he had to clear his mind, end quote. 
So after speaking with his mother about his relapse, agreeing that he tried to get better, and he had lunch with his brother, Rico Harris left in his black Nissan Maxima back to Seattle. Leaving Alhambra, he drove north on Interstate 5. Records show that he stopped in Lodi, a town 40 miles south of Sacramento, to to fill up on gas. At 10.45 a.m. on October 10th, he called his girlfriend from north of Sacramento and left a message saying that he was going, quote, up into the mountains to rest, end quote, since he had been at this point, he'd been driving and he'd been he'd been awake for more than 30 hours. At 1115 that night, he turned the phone off and no one has heard from Rico Harris or positively identified him since then. Wow. Just vanished. So three days later, October 13th, 2014, Officer Danny Del Castillo noticed the black Nissan on the side of the road on Interstate 5, just doing patrols, making sure that nothing seemed weird out of the ordinary. He took note of it. And then the next day when he saw it again in the same spot, he was like, that's not good. Red flags. Uh, so he checked the registration, ran the plates, and he got Rico Harris's name. So he called back the sheriff's office and they said, let's talk to um, where, let's talk to the, the hometown. Let's talk to the local police department where the car is from. So they contacted the 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 police at, in Alhambra and learned that the owner of the car, Rico Harris, hadn't been seen in four days. So they searched the car. The gas tank was empty. The battery was dead. And the interior was totally ransacked. There were CDs everywhere, credit cards, papers, all scattered across the floor. His wallet was found, but his driver's license wasn't in there. There was no cash in the wallet. Um, so at this point, they sent a search and rescue team, and they scoured a 27-mile stretch along Route 16. Uh, there were dogs. They got helicopters. Um, there were team. There was a team out on on the land and motorcycles that that took to to the terrain to go scour the land and there was an airplane they even had a plane equipped with a heat sensing device that flew overhead um three days later the rescue efforts slowed there was no body and very few clues as to where he could be also things do get a little bit weird in that not long after the car was found his cell phone and backpack were also found i think it was like a few miles away from his car and in the backpack were some jumper cables a few pieces of clothing and two bottles one of them is empty one of them was half full and it reeked of energy drink and alcohol hmm. so the lead detective sergeant dean nyland he went on took the lead and he searched through each message and each phone call he went through that phone he pinged cell phone tires Uh, towers to try to figure out his last locations he saw text messages to harris's brother he saw the text to his roommate he saw the calls to his mother and to his girlfriend there was really nothing unusual on there uh he found a series of photos and videos quote the videos according to nyland were taken as if by accident late friday night after harris was supposed to be in seattle it's nearly dark and what can be heard the detective says is harris singing out of tune and tossing the contents of his wallet and cds across the car clanking against the panel and steering wheel end quote so it seemed like it was taken by accident and just um something that ended up on his phone Hmm. oddly enough Rico had been sighted a few times after he after he went missing. So on Saturday, 
the day of his job interview in Seattle, an eyewitness spotted him at 5.30 a.m. sitting on a guardrail overlooking the creek some 500 yards from where his phone and backpack were found. Another person called in with a tip saying that they saw him walking along Route 16 at around 8 a.m. So uh, four days after they had that initial uh, search, a deputy found tracks in the sand by a creek called Cash Creek, and he found those around noon, and they weren't there earlier in the day. Um, They weren't animal tracks, and they were large enough to be Harris's size 18 feet. Uh, so Detective Nyland, they're not getting anywhere. He go, he goes and interviews the family. He asks Jennifer Song, the girlfriend, why she hadn't filed a missing persons report, even when the police got in contact with his mother. And she said that she was in, uh, she was having conversations with the mother and saying that they agreed to wait to see if he, he would show up on his own. Um, one of the articles talked about how Rico Harris sometimes would go out and drive like he loved to drive and he would be gone for hours at a time just to clear his mind so um in that sense it kind of makes uh, sense in that context mm-hmm. to have him um see if he just came back on his own uh so at this point they they widen the search they bring out cadaver dogs they checked homeless shelters they looked into transient camps but there was nothing zero Uh, I have a quote from the Detective Nyland here, quote, initially, he probably voluntarily walked away or got a ride. We have no sightings, so he probably got a ride. But how does this guy not pop up somewhere? I mean, big guy has to eat three or four times a day. I can see how a lot of people who don't stand out can disappear. But this guy stands out, end quote. So Nyland guesses that maybe Rico Harris went out to, to buy meth, uh, but even if he did or if he didn't, that really doesn't tell us anything. It maybe says that uh, messes with the timeline a little bit. Like maybe he ran out of gas or he made a wrong turn. He he left his car, went off to buy drugs, wandered the area for a few days and went back uh, to find his car gone only to walk off some only to walk off somewhere and find a ride question mark, maybe Um to this day, family, friends, and investigators are still looking for for Rico. And the um, the detective doesn't suspect foul play. Hmm. So it's it's tricky. It's yeah. very puzzling. Because what got me was that they haven't found a body. So if he right. OD'd somewhere, I bet he I bet he's a John Doe somewhere. You know. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really, really. Who knows? Yeah. But- yeah, those like videos at the end. That that's very strange. Yeah, like maybe he was having some kind of breakdown at the at the very end. Definitely, but then he again, was you not think, in the right mind. You know, if he just wandered off into the desert, they would have found him. Yeah, I mean, they would have found, if not him alive, they would have found his his body. Yeah, they did multiple searches over a course of a few huh. months. So. I have, a, I have a quote from his mother, quote, this is a pain that's deep, that goes down to your core. It's like you're on a merry-go-round and can't get off. Nothing is going going to quiet the pain. Nothing is going to make it go away. He could be alive. Maybe he's not. I don't know what the truth is. I don't know. People don't just vanish, end quote. But sometimes they do. But sometimes they do. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's very strange. It, um, it reminds me of um, in the Twenty Seven Club episode, who was the the artist that that just like walked away or that they just like never saw. Again. Oh, she left a bar, um, and I then she remember. never saw. They never saw her again. I, I'm I don't recall her name either. Anyway, yeah, that was that was a very that was a good one. Weird, right? Yeah, very weird. Yeah, I'm usually weird about missing person cases, but this one went deep. I yeah. was like, this one's there's something. Mm. It's, it's it's this one's also so frustrating, and the detective talked about this too. Like, there's something there. I just feel like there's there, we're missing something, you know. Right. So my I found some I two I found really two really good articles. Um, one was an LA Times article by Nathan Fenno, and the other was um a foxsports.com article by Flinder Boyd. And I use some Wikipedia, but Wikipedia mostly, and this is what I usually use Wikipedia for, Wikipedia mostly helps me organize, like, how I'm going to tell, relay the story, but also gives me links. And uh, Wikipedia was what gave me that Fox Sports um, article. And it was a a good, it was was a long-form article, and it was good. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, that is... The Disappearance of Rico Harris. Cool. Okay, so do you want to do some weird, weird shit in, in the, the news? news? Dude, I do have some. I got some. You got some weird shit? I got some crazy, crazy shit right here. So. That's cray cray in a good way right there. Oh my God. Shut <laughs> up, Cleveland. There's a reason that show didn't last. Okay. And we, we talked about this. I actually went through this. Three days ago, I have a article from the Telegraph in the UK in the United Kingdom. That was terrible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. Shouldn't have done it. Quote, seagulls keep couple hostage in their own home for six days by attacking them every time they leave the house. This is actually wild. So they were, they were nesting. And every time this couple, Roy and Brenda uh, Pickard, 71, they were constantly confronted by these two adult seagulls after two chicks ended up on the on the roof. So, um, Mister Pickard was so viciously attacked that he ended up with a bloody head wound that needed hospital treatment. So, yeah, this this is this is it's it's weird. Quote: The whole thing has been terrible. I've not been able to go out the front door. If I try to get out of the door, the two adult birds are right there and I've got no chance. It's genuinely frightening. He adds, my wife isn't very, isn't well or very mobile at the moment, so we're relying on me to get out. Thankfully, we have an integrated garage and I can get into it from the kitchen, open the garage door, drive out to get our shopping. But I have to leave the garage door open, which isn't ideal. So, um, uh... And because they're a certain type of seagull, they're herring gulls, and they're protected mm. when they're nesting. They really didn't have a lot of options. Yeah. Uh, a council spokesman said, quote, we sympathize with Mr. Picard's situation. Seagulls can be troublesome, particularly when nesting. We have visited Mr. Picard to assess the situation and have given advice on how he can deal with the gulls. Um, they have a solution in place that will enable him to take his wife to her private appointments. Um, yeah. They, they advise residents to bird proof their properties prior to the breeding season. <laughs> Always a good idea. Uh, is your place boot bird proof? Bird poop. Bird poof. Is your place bird poop? Boof purred. What? Do you have one? 
I have some good shit in the news. What is it? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So, um, it, this one's a little bit old, but um, I meant to do it on a, you know, when we were, like, going to do a, an episode and then we didn't. But anyway, here it is. Um, this is an article from the Washington Post by Allie Karen entitled, Doctors Said She Wouldn't Live to Her First Birthday. She Just Went to Prom with Two Dates. Oh, yes! So, this, um, I love her already. I know. So, the, this... Um, was uh, a, a story about Gabby Horner Shepard, um, who, like they said in the, the article, wasn't expected to live past or even to her first birthday. Um, she was born with this rare genetic disorder called partial trisomy 13. And um, essentially, she her development mentally was stopped at the age of like 18 months. So... Although she's 21 years old, she has the abilities and understanding of an infant, essentially. Um, And but she was, you know, because of her special needs, allowed to continue to attend high school until 21, at which time she she was going to graduate. And um, yeah, which is a great story in and of itself. Right. Her mom um, is just super dedicated to her. And making her life, like, as fulfilling and meaningful as she, like, possibly can. And um, she has 11 people who are helping her throughout the day. Oh, that's awesome. Um, She's got a team. She has truly a whole team around her. And she is the queen. (laughs) And when she, you know, was going to go to prom, her mom, you know, solicited, you know, dates for her. You know, so she could have, like, a real prom experience. And um, many, you know, dozens of of men, you know, sort of stepped forward, but uh, two seemed like just right. Um, one was a um, uh, was a student at a local university, uh, Zach Bowman, um, who attended Brock University, and he said when he um, saw her story. Um, that it it kind of really resonated with him because mm-hmm. he had had uh, some issues in his own life, some mm-hmm. substance abuse abuse issues yeah. and thing, a suicide attempt, yeah. um, and he just really felt like you know it was it was kind of fate that that he and and she would meet and and uh, they've stayed in contact and everything and and the other um, escort was the um, the uh, coach of a. Um, special needs hockey team okay. that that she competed on what? um so and and he's also an, an officer um so those were her her two dates and they went and they they had a great time and and um you know it was just just a really good thing and uh here's a little quote from from um her mom from Gabby's mom quote my life's mission since she came into this world 21 years ago has been to make sure that she is remembered by everyone she meets so that when the day comes that she's no longer on this earth, she has left an imprint on their souls. Close quote. I know. So now that we're now that we're both now crying. That I'm crying. Um so it was just a really oh, a really good story. A, you that know, was a good one. That was a good ending. Yeah. Good. And and go re- like read the read the article or read about her story. I'm sure there's multiple out there. It's just like a really good story. So what's her name again? Um, Gabby. Gabby Horner Shepherd, I believe, was what it was. Yeah, Horner Shepherd. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening, you guys. 
Thank um, you guys for listening. We're, you know, going to try to stay on this regular Wednesday schedule, you know, um, get back onto that normal schedule. We're getting back on track. I mean, we aren't fully unpacked or anything. Like, it's fine. <laughs> but um, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, totally fine. But, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, check out our Instagram. Yep, we're on Insta. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. My Twitter's MarioText30. Yeah, at if you, if you want to read um, uh, political articles <laughs> or good or good shit in the news, like with Gabby, so or good shit you know, in the news, Mario's be, be the... <laughs> got to find some. <laughs> Jesus Christ, in this day and age. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's uh, I think probably going to be it for this week. So. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.